Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 159 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, I chat with Bob Manton and just Jeff Shadbolt from Purple Hearts. Formed in 1978, they were a mod-influenced band that blended elements of post-punk, new wave, and mod revival to create a distinctive and energetic sound that resonated with a wide audience beyond the confines of the mod scene. We talk about their discovery of the jam as punk-loving teenagers in Essex, the creation of their first band, The Sockets, and how it evolves into Purple Hearts and that more mod-influenced sound, which, thanks largely to the jam, was beginning to capture public attention. The band ended up supporting the jam on tour, and Paul Weller even produced a couple of tracks at 1.2. You're going to love this one. Let's get into it. Bob Manton, thanks for joining me. Hi, Bob. How are you? Very well, thank you. Lovely to have you on. And of course, just Jeff. Jeff Shadbow is here as well. Hi, Jeff. How you doing, Dan? You okay, mate? All very well. Hey, look, this is lovely. We don't have many of these ones where it's more than one people, so this is going to be fun. This is edge of your seat kind of stuff for me controlling this conversation. Well, I'm on the edge of a Lambretta seat. <laughs> if I slip off, it'll be purely for comedy effect. Hang on. Oh. Folks, you can't see this, but he's literally sat on a scooter, which can't be the most comfortable of things. Well, I suppose it is because you go on long journeys on these things, right? You're oh, used yeah, to that. I go to Brighton every weekend. I'm off to Scarborough next weekend. I'm always at the Isle of Wight. No, I don't actually. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing thing we'll get into we'll get into the scooters we must talk about that because the ultimate mod accessory obviously um, i want to kick off this is the paul weller fan podcast i want to kick off and take you back to you guys as teenagers it would have been punks exploded 1976 we're then into 77 talk to me about your first discovery of the jam bob kick us off when do you remember discovering the music of mr weller for the first time well the first time i saw them i i went with, i went with simon actually they were supporting the trogs and meal ticket at the um, Imperial College of Art or somewhere like that, yeah. Can you go and see them at the ICI? That's it. I think it's the ICI. Yeah, thanks. Imperial College or something. Yeah. All I remember about it now is um, it's an re- experience you can never really have again, I suppose. They were a little way into their set as we walked in. It was like the adrenaline that I got from it was like having like a cattle prod to the chest, you know. It was amazing. And this is pre-record release, presumably? Yeah, this would be about March, April. And then the three of us started to go to see them straight from school on a 25 pence Red Bus Rover. That's <laughs> free in the city, pre the single even, yeah. Wow, okay. And what about you, Jeff? First time I remember seeing the jam was at the Red Cow in Hammersmith. Me and Bob, um, Simon might have been there, I think, but me and Bob went for, all the way from school in Romford, wearing our school uniforms, all the way to the Red Cow in Hammersmith. And we got there and they just finished their sound check and we thought they'd, we'd missed a gig. And we just sat down and then we started talking to Grant Fleming, Hillary, Chip, some of the really cool South End mods. And then Paul and um, I think it might have been Rick and Bruce come over and start talking. We said, oh, we thought it was a couple of mods. And we were like, yeah, we are, we are, we are. And that was very early at the Red Cow in Hammersmith. That was really good. Then we saw them in Nashville. I didn't, yeah, we used to go to some really early gigs, priest singles, yeah. And already you're talking about mod then. So in Romford, was there much, I mean, you're teenagers. This is like you say, you're in your school blaze, your school outfits. Did that mean something to you even at that young age? It certainly did. And I think Bob and Simon picked up on it early in what I did. So the Quadrophenia album, like the original Quadrophenia album, and they picked up on it then. I was a bit later getting into it. You know, we were punks, weren't we, in 1977? We were punk rockers. 
But at the same time, because it was like uh, the middle of the 70s, there was a lot of, um, in a limited way anyway, because the, the media that you've got now didn't exist. But like people like John Peel were doing retrospectives of 60s bands, you know, on his show on a Friday night. You had Nicky Horn on Capital Radio. He had a, a 60s night on the Friday night and he would play the Yardbirds, the Stones, the Kinks, the Beatles, the Who. We were thinking, this stuff is great, you know, this is better than the punk rock we're listening to, you know. It really speaks to us. So uh, I think it came from that British invasion-type music, plus, like as Jeff mentioned, the, the Quadrophenia booklet and pin-ups, of course, Bowie, with all those 60s covers. There was a lot of mod influence in the punk movement anyway, I think, as well. You as kids, how did you two meet? Was it out of school? Yeah, secondary school. I think it was 11, weren't we, Bob? Yeah. Nice. What a, like, this friendship's lasted all those years. This is incredible. Oh, I don't know about that. We've had our moments. <laughs> Bit off and on at times, but it's been fun. Let's yeah. talk about the first band then. So you formed the, it was the Sockets, the first That's band. Right. Right? And I read somewhere that you couldn't play any instruments when you formed the no, band. not at all. <laughs> Simon could. Simon could appear. But no, I, I certainly couldn't. Simon could play about three chords, I think, but then that's all you needed, wasn't it? That's the punk ethos, right? That's the whole yeah. thing. Everybody's doing that. It wasn't the idea to get a gig or, or a support slot with the Buzzcocks. Was that the idea? That's what my sociology teacher, Mr. Southern, and he was, because remember in the seventies, you had a lot more male teachers and they were a lot younger and they were from the sixties. They had a sort of hippie band, if you like. But Mr. Southern, he was from Leeds. He was friends with Howard DeVoto. You know, there was no intention from our part. We just got the chance and we went for it. You know, North East London Polytechnic Barking. Somebody said to me about the fact that this was, there was like a rock opera, punk rock opera thing that you'd created. Yeah, Reg. Totally tongue in cheek. The actual idea is that it, there was a cartoon in the enemy called The Lone Groover. I think The Lone Groover was taking the piss out of the jam and there was this three-piece group he was talking to and they said, yeah, we've got this rock opera called Reg about someone with 16 different personality problems yeah so i wrote a handful of i say wrote they're very very basic i wrote a handful of songs a bit like a mini quadrophenia there was about four or five songs there's very little plot but yeah that was our punk rock opera yeah it was a, it was a send up really <laughs> a send up of a send up how about that didn't he lived on the 13th floor of a tower block in east ham, east ham. Man, right yeah and his mind goes round in circles <laughs> Reg, R, Reg, Reg. It was very, really good lyrics, yeah. What was it? There were four songs, weren't there? Was it Reg? What was the others? Down down the Rocks, he was one. There's Reg. Oh, you've done your research, haven't you, Dan? He has, hasn't he? It was, hang on, wait a minute. Yeah, Reg. Reg. Sulfate Sally. Sulfate Sally, down the Rocks, he's blowing up. That was about it, wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And did these ever get recorded? Where are these still things that exist somewhere in little notebooks? And no, not, not, no. <laughs> as far as I know, there is no actual recordings of the sockets. No, if there are, they'd be on a, like a very primitive cassette player. But and pretty soon we then evolve into Purple Hearts, which is what we're going to talk about and these connections with the Jam and Weller and and your own thing, obviously. I guess to a certain extent, so the punk explosion's dead, and we're now into what's called new wave. The Jam clearly, you know, playing a key role in that, and and this modern revival when we must talk about all that why did you turn into purple hearts well it seemed like a natural progression really and i don't think i really got into the spiky hair and ripped jeans kind of thing so i always wanted to be smarter and i think we we just progressed and got got into the music obviously via the jam the hood small faces and we just wanted to be better if you know what i mean I guess there's also that inspiration. So the Jam have obviously got a record deal in the city, yeah. modern world and all that, and you're lapping that stuff up, presumably. Well, looking at the Jam, we could see also, apart from the fact that it's something we wanted to do uh, and we were genuinely into it, we could see that maybe there was some commercial potential in actually doing it. You know, it'd be worth doing from the point of view of making, you know, a living or something. So, But that wasn't our primary consideration, obviously. Yeah, so they were commercially successful. I thought with- we did it because we wanted to change the world. Did you get me into it under four tenses? <laughs> <laughs> He's been leading me on for the last 43 years. For Bob, it was all about the cash. <laughs> <laughs> I was at pains not to say, well, nothing wrong with it being about cash, is it? But I mean, <laughs> what I'm saying is if you've got a band like The Jam who are actually apparently successful with a mod image, then it doesn't seem such a silly thing to do it yourself, does it? It means it's got legs in theory, hasn't it? Mod and modernism mean different things to different people, don't they? But so let's talk to you, Bob, first of all. What did mod mean for you? Really reading the little Pete Meaden interview in, in the, there's a book called The Decade of the Who, you know, all about the existentialism side of it, you know, the clean living under difficult circumstances, the fact that it was um, it's unique among British youth cultures I'm talking about the original movement now that it was a society within society or outside of society it didn't have any political bias it was just like an underground movement that was totally separate you know for instance you'd have a job the job would be 
a means to an end, not an end in itself as it was in those days, you know. Uh, so it was, it was very subversive in a sort of a, a non-political way. So, yeah, I was very interested. And also, to me, it appealed to me because I, you know, w- was very... Um, very shy around women and had no real experience of girls. So it emphasised the sort of like that you didn't need to take part in all those games, you know. The look of it's important, the kind of sharp lines, the smart, I mean, Jeff, you touched on it yeah, the, as well. Yeah, the clean lines of the 60s in general, you know, I think it's it, I think it's often missed that with, with the actual mod revival in 78, 79, a lot of it was more of a sort of swinging 60s idea revival in general. You know, there's not just refined to uh, initially anyway you know people harking back to a time you know with, if you look at the look at the sweeney for instance and look what london looks like in the mid 70s it's like a bomb site isn't it it's really <laughs> cool. and then you've got like teenagers of that time who've been punks looking back to like films like smashing time you know that glamorous probably totally false but idea of the swinging 60s i just wanted to be popular not just because i don't think i was very popular at school and without going into too much deeper meaningful stuff when being in the band it makes you feel part of something. And then moving on from that, being in a mod band, we could go out, I don't know, we'd, we'd go out, see a band, and we'd be in, I don't know, somewhere in London, you just bump, to, bump into a couple of like-minded people, and before you know you've got a new friendship group. And mod has always given you part of, like, a meaning, a feeling that you're part of something. And to me, it doesn't matter what you wear, whether you wear, I don't know, a park with a load of patches on or the best suit made in Savile Row. To me, it's, it's a state of mind. I can remember once years ago, I think after the band split up, I went for an audition with a band called Southern Death Cult. I went for the audition and I dressed the least mod I thought I would could at that time. And the guy went, yeah, he said, yeah, I reckon you could probably get the stuff in time. He said, but do you know what? He said, we're going to say no because you look too much like a mod. (laughs) And I just whispered in his ear. I said, I'll tell you what to do with your band then. And I told him where to stick his band and about – Two months later, they changed the name to The Cult and released <laughs> Smells Like Sanctuary and was one of the biggest hits of all time. And I don't regret it because it would have changed the path of my life completely, but it's just one of them funny stories. When it moving back onto the mod thing, it did become a bit of a dirty word in the, in the press and around that. But it's never gone away as far as we're concerned. It's always been in the back of your mind. But it shouldn't really matter what you write, what you wear, what job you do, what you listen to. It's how you feel at the time. So, you know. From a band point of view, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's kind of like the idea of fitting in with the others and being a collective. I'm not a musician in a mod band. I feel I'm a mod in a band. And to me, that's kind of different. Whereas some of the bands, I'm not going to mention their names, who are clearly musicians, possibly even session musicians in mod bands. I always felt we were mods in a band that appealed to mods because we were mods and you know because some of our music might not be seen as mod music but it's being played by us and we feel that we're passionate about it and it meant a lot to us it's fair to say that that didn't always land in terms of the you know the mod thing got a, there was a bit of piss taking and stuff but you have these people who who understand who get it in terms of the music and people like Gary Bushell so the sounds journalist who's who's going to come on the podcast plays a key role really in this in this growing movement he gets it from day one it wasn't he your first interview was that right yeah, it was him who actually gave me the name just Jeff he was interviewing us probably for sounds or one of them and he went round oh what's your name Simon Simon Stebbin Gary Sparks Robert Manchin. Jeff, he said, yeah, Jeff, what? Because I was a bit embarrassed by my surname because my shadbolt was a bit unusual. I'd get a lot, lot of stick, you know, with it at school. So I just said, oh, it's just Jeff. And he went, okay, that's fine. We'll stick with that, just Jeff. And that's how it stuck. <laughs> Sounds had such credibility that it gives this mod revival, I guess, kudos. So it gives it backing, that stamp of approval from the music press in a, in a way that maybe it wasn't getting at the time. If you think about it, in 78, we was only probably 14, 13, 14 years away from the original mods. Whereas now, we've got people into mod now, how many years away from they probably, what, 43 years, 44 years away from 79. So it, it gets diluted, and that's why I always say to people, it doesn't matter what you wear, what you ride, what you, you know, if that's your interpretation of mod, albeit you might have something slightly wrong according to us, because we probably got something wrong according to the 60s guys but just accept it just accept people for what they are just just live with it if you've got that you know train of thought just accept everybody but a lot of people don't 
And Bob, for you, so at this point, also the jam are getting bigger. Um, and as fans, you know, you're, so you're in a band, you're making music, and we'll talk about that 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 record deal in a sec. But the jam are starting to get bigger as well, and they're playing bigger arenas. And you're you're following that ride as a fan of them too, presumably. No, actually, I think once they got past a certain point, I think we stopped. We didn't go anything very. I think the biggest one we went to was one in Stratford, like the town town hall or something. But uh, I think we stopped before, at Hammersmith Apollo. I don't think I was at that one. No, I mean that's the one we didn't go to, and from then on, oh, right. that's we, we felt that we'd lost our band, our band, the Jam. Yeah, because we that's it because we'd seen them in pubs and helped carry their gear in and that. So once they got to a certain level, I mean, we was plenty of other. We were obviously we were go, we went to see Generation X, Nine Nine Nine, the Buzzcocks, you name it, you know in various combinations. So uh, a lot of other stuff happening. But yeah, I like seeing bands in small places. Still do, really. I like that. The idea that they were yours and then suddenly actually too many people are getting interested. It's becoming that, to be, yeah, 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 there was that proprietal feeling. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've had that in my um, my love of music with some artists as well. You're kind of like, it's like I prefer yeah, that, is them my, the- that is my theory. That is my theory and my theory alone, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk fiction records. So the next Weller connection is the signing to fiction. So this is because um, Chris Parry, Chris Parry, the guy who signs the jam to Polydor, out of um, all mod cons, halfway through, splits with a jam, I suppose, if you like, and sets up fiction with Polydor, part of Polydor. And you're one of the first signings. I mean, The Cure have had some success on the label already, but Purple Hearts get signed to the label. How did that come about? And presumably you were aware of the jam connection with Chris. Yeah, yeah, because, uh, I mean, fiction was like Polydor's present to Chris Parry for the money that he'd made them via the jam, I think, in a sense. So, uh, and it was distributed by Polydor, so it's sort of like being on Polydor at one remove, you know. There's something that, uh, of all people, Aerosmith, the guy in Aerosmith said this, Bands always take the deal they're offered because pretty likely that's the only one you're going to get. <laughs> and I think that's probably the only deal we properly offered. So, Well, back in the Rage days, I think me, Derwin, Steve and Buddy, we was offered at one time about four deals with Stiff and Eddie's label. And we, we turned all of them down. We should have took at least one of them. Chris is also, in the same way as he was with The Jam, is also really heavily involved in the, the recording process. He has like producer credits on the singles, the album. He wasn't just you know a label boss. He, he was really involved in the development, the production, yeah. everything with the band, yeah? Primarily a producer, yeah. We were quite at loggerheads with him over the sound, you know. I mean, I think, as it turned out, everyone seems to really like Beat That, the album and the stuff that we did with him. And uh, I think his production's very good, but I don't think it's what we had in mind at all. I personally was thinking of the Kinks, you know, that sort of Kinks Who sort of like sound, you know. Oh, he did a good job and people like it. So I guess he was right and we, I was wrong. <laughs> Let's talk about the first single. So Millions Like Us, this mod call to arms. This is September 1979. And I'm going to ask you some questions from the fans as well. So I mentioned that we were catching up and on a Weller connection. So I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> smash hits, Paul Weller, smash hits, September 20th issue. So this is 1979, September 20th. He's promoting the Jam's fourth album, Setting Suns. And he shared a list of his favorite songs. Do you remember this? And the, the, Millions yeah. Like Us was in the list. I meant a Someone that we'd followed for sort of like, you know, a couple of years previously has has given a bit of recognition to something that we've done. Yeah, it meant a lot to us. And presumably that song was something that you'd you'd worked in the live arena, you got it to a point where, you know, you'd you'd road tested it and stuff for it it to become the first single. Been in the set, you know, from about April 79 until July when we recorded it. So, yeah, it was well, yeah. Although, I mean, if you just hear the John Peel version, it sounded very different, actually, for a while. You know, it had a different sort of coda at the end. But, yeah, it had been in the set a while, yeah. yeah. What's a coda? A coda? Well, it might, I might not have used the right word, but if you remember the John Peel version, there's that sort of down, 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 down. Motif, then, probably a better word. Oh, sort okay. of motif at the end, yeah. I'm going to have to pay PRS now for that, look. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Well, yeah, that's the John Pilbert. It's always the money. I've seen people on social media talking about how that song remains just as relevant and and inspiring as well today as as it did when it was first released. Because it was this big call to arms for for mods, right? Well, actually, it's about teenagers and youth culture. And well, yeah, of course, because I was a mod writing it. Yeah, but it's actually about it's it's observational. It's me trying to write Making Time by the creation. So when we say relevant today to those cultures or subcultures of kids yeah, who are yeah, so like, right now. Yeah, hopefully it's pretty timeless, yeah. But it, it, it is, yeah, it's about, yeah, of course it is. It's a mod. Obviously it's a mod anthem. You know, it's just written 
from an observational perspective, you know, like making time. Why do we have to carry on always singing the same old song? PRS, I suppose you've got to pay now, you know. I wonder why we've got so much to prove. Do you see what I mean? Do you see the connection? And no. obviously... <laughs> no. Just no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Performing that song live now. There's, there are songs, certain songs in your set list when you're gigging, and we'll talk about the live dates that you're, you're doing right now and, and this, this autumn and stuff in a sec as well. There are songs like that which must get like an amazing reaction still to this day from your fans, yeah? Yeah, and, and we could never stop doing them, but I think this... I would, if you'd have asked me like 40 years ago, would I still be doing this? I... I didn't think I'd, I'd be capable of doing it. I, B, I didn't think I'd want to do it. And I didn't think also that anyone would still be interested. And the fact that people still are, it's just unbelievable. And I think we had a situation a year or so ago when we played Black Post, talked to a guy called Stuart Rain, and he was just sort of saying to me how much we actually meant to him and to his friends. And I think it's so easy to lose sight of that. So it's just people like that makes you think, still got to do it. And I think as long as we... Still able to do it physically, we certainly will because you know you can't always be as slim and good looking as you used to be. But as long as you've got the same passion and same feeling for it, I can't see any reason why we should stop. It's one of them things being in a band that you can easily fall out of love with as much as you can fall in love with being in a band. It's like nothing else. Yeah, I love it. There's nothing like it, like Jeff says. Yeah, as he says, you don't always realize what it means to people, you know. So it's, it's very gratifying. You're making people happy, so like. You know, what better, what better thing could you do in life, you know? Just to coin a phrase from uh, one of Manny's band's uh, songs, I do actually want to be adored. And it's just <laughs> one of them things, being in a band, it just makes you feel like you are. And it's just, whether it's some, in a, for some form of like massive insecurity or whatever, it, it just makes you feel that, yeah, you, you've got somewhere. I'd like to pick up on that because it's something that Madonna said, not to me, obviously. Performing artists in general, whatever they're doing, whether they're musicians or that, they're, they're in some, whether they know it or not, you know, they're looking for some sort of approval that they can't get anywhere else. And I think that's quite true, actually, yeah. No, I don't care if people approve as long as they adore me. Well, no, you may not think you do. <laughs> this is the point. <laughs> yeah. It's the adoration that he needs. But not in a vain way. It's just like... No, I know what you mean, yeah. It's like wanting to be accepted, wanting to be... Yeah, yeah. But yeah. not part of the general society, but being accepted and seen as something that means so much to people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah, yeah. I remember being on a bus years and years ago, going up London to a gig, and like, we were just chatting to someone, he had a badge on, and he was one of them great big badges. I think I might have had a jam badge on. He had a, a band called Local Effect. He had their badge on. And I said, oh, look, at that local band. He went, yeah, but what you've got to remember is, for every one Purple Hearts, there's probably 2,000 local effects. And even back then, you think it's hard to sort of comprehend that you know people are actually into something that you're doing. And that you're inspiring them in them in the same way as the artists and the bands inspired you to form a band. That's so cool, isn't that? The past yeah. on effects. Go about inspiring someone. I, I wrote Beat That, which is pretty much an anti-marriage song years ago. And this guy told me that he split up with his girlfriend after listening to it because he didn't want to get married. <laughs> oh I never knew that. But one thing I will say, all, all members of the Purple Hearts are, are, in this current format are all actually divorced. So. <laughs> I'm trying to like beat that the, the reprise or beat that too to follow up on it. So <laughs> let me talk about your second single, so frustration. Here's some words from the fans. Okay, so Jason Bayard, who said uh, about frustration, he said it's a mod anthem. It describes the feeling when we were kids and the look. The word frustration sums it up. A lot of angst. This song describes the feeling of being mod revivalists at that time. I get frustration. I wear it like a suit. Uh, Richard Jordan on Facebook said, Frustration is such a great song. It just takes me back to the Greyhound days when we all went crazy on the dance floor to this song. Stuart D. Bill, friend of the podcast, he was episode number one. He said, Hi, mate. I love frustration. And he has a question. He says, Do you think the film Quadrophenia hindered or helps them in their pursuit of a musical career. So that had come out around about the same time, Quadrophenia in cinema. So yeah, what, what are your thoughts on that, Jeff? Oh, it's a real difficult one because it kind of helped it to make it go more mainstream. But also I think it it's, was part of its demise, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think it um, it expanded it out very quickly, like a balloon expanding, and then that was very quickly popped. And the original scene, because you've got to remember the original mod scene in London with the calls of Purple Hearts and, a, a, you know, Secret Affair. There's a little period sort of like mid-78 to say mid-79 where like you've got, a, I don't know, maybe a thousand kids and they all know each other, you know, like a really small scene. With Quadrophenia, you've got a lot of people coming into it. And then like right after that, almost straight after that, you get Two-Tone, which completely killed any commercial prospects. I'm not, I'm not 
being bitter at all, I'm just saying what happened for the mod revival because that became the the thing. What is it? Three months later, we get the release of the debut album, Beat That, which you mentioned. But at this point, Chris Parry, has he gone back home to New Zealand or is like maybe losing a bit of interest in fiction, I think? So perhaps the album doesn't get as much support and plugging as it as it rightly deserves. Yeah, but I think part of that was probably due to the fact that it was um, our publicist was Brian Morrison of Anti Music who had us, um, Calls, The Jam, Secret Fair, BG's Joel Michael, he had basically everyone under his wing. And I'm sure, if you remember rightly, Bob, didn't he say to us, put out If You Need Me as a follow-up single to the album? He was going to get behind it. I don't remember it being him. I know that uh, all I I thought that Chris Parry wanted to do that. I think initially it came from Brian Morrison. And it yeah, made I don't think he done us any favours, though, because, it, you know, I mean, I couldn't really sing very well in those days. And I don't think it would have been a poison ivy like the Lambrettas, you know. So, yeah, it might. I think that fiction let us go because we basically, it was very expensive to record in those days, not like it is now, much more expensive it is now. And we, you know, from a cheerly business point of view, we weren't selling. So uh, they cut their losses, basically, yeah. I, I mean, I found out a lot about Brian Morrison subsequently, how he was involved with the Pink Floyd, mm. very heavily behind the pretty things, you know, really interesting guy. I don't know. I don't think it was good enough to have, it'd have to have been re-recorded, put it that way, with better vocals and a brass section to have been a, any chance of being a hit. That's all I'll say about that. But yeah, it might have been that. Huh? Yeah. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's interesting how I think, you know, as with any band, your sound's evolving, you're embracing new ideas. There's a bit of psychedelia coming into it as well, which echoes Mr. Weller and his journey with the jam, I suppose, in the sense of it's kind of, you know, it's those later album sound effects and the gift and all that are worlds apart. <laughs> Excuse the jam pun. Worlds apart from in the city and the modern world. How's that you know? a jam pun? Well, it- it was a it was a B side, I think, or a demo, if I remember, on extras. Oh, <laughs> so um, it's, it's a really geeky one, Jeff. Sorry, but your okay. sound your sound was developing because you presumably you were discovering new things that you wanted to try out in the band as well. And there was talk, or the start of a second album, demos, and and Weller was producing. So how does this come about? Was this before you played live with the Jam? Well, that happened around the same sort of time. I can remember I was working in my mum's garage on a scooter, and there used to be a clothes shop in Romford called Mintz and Davis, and the manager was Paul. So my mum's come out to the garage. She said, someone on the phone for you. I said, who is it? She's gone back. I said, who is it? He said, it's Paul. Come back to me. He said, it's Paul. I said, what, Paul from Mintz? So my mum's gone back to the phone. <laughs> and he's gone, no, it's Paul from the jam. And I'm not going to do a Paul Weather impression because I really can't. But basically, he wanted us to go up, um, wanted me to go up to his uh, office in Hyde Park Place, have a chat with him. And he was there, and we just basically, that's when he got us a couple of days in Polydor Studio doing demos and got us some gigs on the last but one tour, which we we really indebted to him for doing that. And he played keyboards and guitar on a couple of tracks, didn't he, Bob? He played piano on Concrete Mixer and Plane Crash, the tracks we did with him, yeah. And you used um, Bruce Foxen's bass, the one that was on start. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. Compliments it, yeah, when we, we recorded Polydor Studio and we wanted a certain bass sound and Paul went off and got this bass and we used that, yeah. So and was there talk of, because at this point, are you what, without a deal? You've left fiction, presumably. Yeah. So was there talk yeah. of like signing up for Respond, Paul's record label, that, or was that not a thing yet? I'm trying to think about the timeline. No, my, my memory of it is he said to us, if you want me to put this out and Respond, I will. But I think us being so arrogant and up ourselves, I don't know, but... We just used it as a demo to take around other companies and subsequently didn't get it out. So more for us, yeah? And what was he like in the studio? I mean, we're talking obviously about 40-odd years ago now, but what was he like as a producer in the studio? Um, yeah, Collaborative, directional, talk me through. Yeah, Pete Wilson working with him, didn't he? Yeah. And Pete's very, very good engineer and very good producer as well. 
he got a good couple of tracks out of us. Yeah, I can't remember exactly, you know, his stance on it. But yeah, you know, a lot of that jam sound was Pete Wilson. I think kudos to him as well. I'll tell you what he did do, though, is you're talking about psychedelia. He brought a lot of records in and he made us a tape each of uh, some of the stuff we were aware of already from uh, Jeff's uh, parents' uh, stall that he used to get a lot of records from but uh he made us a tape with like john's children early pink floyd the creation the action uh some of the more sort of you know freak beat basically the eyes a lot of stuff we'd never have heard you know I love the so fact that this guy is like, this guy is like number one in the charts, right? So this is around the time we've had going underground, all that. And he's sat yeah. home making mixtapes. C90 each, full of this. Uh, so that kind of fed into what we did after, you know, as well later on musically, although we were sort of aware of it as anyway, but having all those, you know, reference points was really good. Yeah. So that was interesting. Talk me through the songs that he was on that, that you recorded then. So there's Concrete Mixer. Yeah. He plays piano. No, I think it's a sort of, it might be like a, do you know that? I don't know. Something else on it. Right, he plays piano on it. I don't play any guitar. And he plays piano on Plane Crash, I think. Yeah. He did backing vocals as well. Did he? Yeah, I'm sure him, you and Simon did backing vocals. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's so long ago, isn't it? And one of the fans asked me to ask about Hazy Darkness on a Sunny Day and whether Weller played on that one. Do you remember? No, that was on the EMI demo, so that was recorded totally different um, oh, for yeah. EMI. We only did the two, didn't we, Apollo Just Concrete Mixer yeah. and Plane Crash. Yeah, just Concrete Mixer, Plane Crash, yeah, nothing else, yeah. So when you're in the studio, are you aware of what the upcoming jam support slots then? Are you aware that you're going to be performing live and supporting the band? I can't remember. Maybe, maybe not. I but think we might have done, yeah. Or he had him or his dad was working on it at the time, but he he got us obviously Brighton, Crawley. We did the Woking Youth Club with him, didn't we? The secret gig. Yeah, this is brilliant. So this is so this is February nineteen eighty one. They play the YMCA in Woking. Yeah, that, the, well, there was two in Woking. One with Department S and one with us. So I think ours was the Shearwater Youth Club. Could be wrong. Yeah, it's very solid bond in your heart videos um, recording. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Why I keep such records of what the Purple Hearts are doing now because I. I I've got no um, no diaries or anything from the time. You know, I'd like to have had, like, uh, just all the gigs, who they are with, and the set lists, if nothing else, you know. But uh, sort of, like, really kept a very OCD record of um, PH2 slash Purple Hearts from the word go, you know. We did Norwich, we did Nottingham, Crawley. Talk to me about what it's like, then, to play on a set like that with, with the jam, who at that point, like I say, are having number one singles, they're huge. I don't think we realised the enormity of it at the time. Uh, we just took it in our stride, but I just wish now we had more records of it, like, you know, more photographs. Part of me can't actually believe that it actually happened. It's almost like one of them pinch me moments. Did we really support? It's only because people keep reminding us that they was at Brighton or there was at, you know, Norwich and, you know, but it, it's all still a blur, you know. Live performance has always been such a big thing for you both. We touched on that a little bit, but, um, and for the band as a whole, you know, that's that, that kind of energy, that performance and getting out there in front of the crowd means so much that that connection is so important, but it means so much to the fans as well. And we've touched on it a little bit on the podcast, but here's a few other people. So James Scott said he saw you at Portsmouth Poly, early 1980s, great gig. Hawaiian Hammer said one of the best bands from that time, level pegging with the chords for me after the obvious. I assume the obvious being the jam, but uh, Andy Miller says, I saw them a few times back in the day. One memorable gig, late December 1980, Fulham Greyhound. Don't know if you remember this. He said, loads of skinheads turned up outside. Bob Manson came out outside with a group of us to take them on. That's a bad dream. That didn't happen. Uh, listen, I've got the fighting skills of a Barbie doll, and I wouldn't ever put myself in that situation. <laughs> Well, I don't know what that said. I'm not questioning the chap's memory, but I would know why I would have been out out there doing that. <laughs> uh, right, who else have we got? Chris Platt. So being ever so slightly younger than one or two people on here, the first Purple Heart singer I ever bought was Plane Crash in 1982 when I was 15. I played The Gun of Life over and over. I loved it then and I still do to this day. Um, so this was one, you know, I've seen a version of this with a mention of Paul Weller and then other ones where it's not, but he, what did he play on the demo or he played on the final release? Talk me through that. Single release is, is quite a while after the one we did with Weller. So... No, it was Roadrunner Records. No, he doesn't play on that. No, that's just us. Yeah. That's just you. So he's on the demo. You call it a demo, but of course it's probably a more releasable quality than the one we put out on Roadrunner. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, Gary Crowley, friend of yours, obviously. Uh, yeah. My question is, how do the boys look back on those early Purple Heart shows when the scene was beginning to gather momentum? What are the highlights for them and the hopes? I was like really, you know, arrogant and I thought that we were going to be, you know, on top of the pops and conquer the world and be as big as the kinks and the who and the small faces. So 
totally delusional, basically. <laughs> so is there a looking back on it with some kind of regret or? I don't know if I actually even do look back at it as such. It's hard for me to sort of, um, it's really hard for me to actually picture a lot of it now. Yeah, I mean, I can remember stuff if people talk about stuff, but. Yeah, can I put myself back in that situation? I don't know. No, not really, because like I'm sort of more concerned with what I'm doing now, I suppose. Mr. Crowley also followed up and said, what kind of album could they have made if they'd been given the chance after the impressive beat that? And which producer would they have loved to have worked with? I'll tell you what, Gary Crowley should do this for a living, shouldn't he? He's very good. If you take, like, do you know the, the Smashing Time compilation album? If you take a lot of all the live stuff off it, right, you get it down to about 11 tracks or 10 tracks, that is sort of a potential lost second album. So it would have had some, one or two things that ended up on Popish Frenzy. So, so I'd imagine what we, I'd, I'd imagine it had been quite, it'd be quite psych. I reckon it'd be quite freak beat, quite psych. So yeah, it could have been good actually, but yeah, there you go. That's what I think. Who would you have liked to produce it for you? Produce it? Oh, sorry. Uh, who would I have actually wanted to produce it at the time? So we haven't got, oh, Andy Arthur's. Brilliant producer, did the Jigsaw single, really good, like George Martin, clean but hard sound. Yes, Andy Arthur's. God, it's a classic, I can hear it already. (laughs) Mark Eggins says, ask them about their appearance in Rough Cut and Ready Dubs, doing Millions Like Us. So this was a film around the time, when was it? Between 78 to 1981, like live footage, all this stuff. People absolutely love this film. Yeah, yeah. David Bushel was in it interviewing us, and there was a short uh, clip of us doing Millions Like Us at the Moonlight Club in West Hampstead. That might have been supporting a band, I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was. They were film students, basically, and they said, can we do this and do some stuff with you? Because there's not much video footage that exists of, like, back in the day of the Purple Hearts, right? Well, so that- there's that, and then there's a tiny bit of footage from the London Weekend show. And that's it. But what you're, In your previous question, Dan, just moving back about regrets and that kind of thing, the only thing I kind of – I haven't got any regrets, and I wouldn't change anything apart from I just wish I'd have embraced it more and would have um, probably drunk less and been able to, as Bob said, have a list of things, lists of gigs, lists of set lists, and just enjoyed it more. I think it was it, it seemed to happen so quickly. If you can't imagine one minute we seem to be like doing a gig supporting the Buzzcocks a week before we leave school, next thing it's sort of like, you know, on tour with Secret Affair and doing sort of like a lot bigger things. It was quite a lot to, to handle. So I wish we'd have just sort of had more time to sort of take it slowly and enjoy more. When you're in something like that, it's difficult to step back and, ref- and, and look at what's going on, isn't it? And, I, and this isn't the same thing, but I'm going to talk about when, you know, when I was a radio broadcaster, I did breakfast shows and stuff. I look, you know, I wish I, at the time I realized what you a privilege. You've got a for radio. <laughs> what a kit. <laughs> I, I wish I'd realized what a privilege that was every morning to be broadcasting on a breakfast show and how much, you know, what a, an amazing gig that was. That's so ridiculously yeah. fun. Yeah. It wasn't a job for Christ's sake. You know, I got, I got paid to do, I'd be paid terribly but i got paid to do that and hosting things where you'd be on stage and fifty thousand people like as an mc it was like such a buzz but my memories are so hazy so if i was in a band it'd be even worse we're gonna say i want to talk about ph2 before we go so purple hearts 2 this came around like off, off the back of covid time right so or during covid you were kind of recording yeah. that stuff so talk me through that because there have been various iterations of purple hearts you've gone away you've fallen out with each other you come back and all that right ph2 talk me through what never, that is, is it? <laughs> did you <Never>. know <laughs> ph2 talk me through what this is bob and, and how it came back and, and why was it not just purple hearts just to how it ph2 started was um the original lineup got offered a gig in 2019 the mods may day thing gary and simon adamantly didn't want to do it so i don't know how long I, much i really wanted to do it jeff really wanted to do it i remember i don't know how much it might have been even a year later but i said to jeff i was thinking aloud really but i i said like uh i wonder what it'd be like if me and you did it with two other guys because you'd had the president of like president president i can't even say it that word you had the, the, the that word of um Gary and Simon had had a, a group doing Purple Heart songs, RT3, RT4, 79s, etc. Um, for me personally, I think I might not have even sort of had these thoughts, you know, about doing it, but it was 2020, My I'll call him my father-in-law for shorthand, died in horrible circumstances. And then my mum died about a month later. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, you don't have time personally not to do things. Do you see what I mean? So I think there was quite a bit of that background to it. So, you know, perhaps if that there'd been no COVID, 
and no personal sort of bereavements. I might not have had the same idea, but yeah, I really wanted to do it. I thought, you know, I don't have time not to do things. That's how I put it. You reached out to Charles Reese at Blackburn to record down there, I think. Was that right? I got to know um, Steve Craddock for a guy called Den Davis, who you probably know, yep. and Rick Barsley, and we were just chatting. And uh, I think Den gave me the email address for the lady who does the studio bookings. I think Charles was contacted that way, but he didn't get back to us. Obviously, too busy. Den rang me one more Saturday morning and said, oh, Steve Craddock's interested. Give him a call. And I was like... What, like you want me to ring like Steve Craddock like right now on his phone and I've got to ring him and he went yeah went, like, ring Steve Craddock went, yeah so I rang him and Steve Craddock being the great lovely guy he is was just like really up for it you know come down so we just basically off we trotted down to Steve Craddock's place and it was really good he's a great guy to work we've got good some good stuff out of us I mean there must be a temptation to be like oh come on Craddock you know do a little bit of play and give us a bit of a riff or whatever but as a producer what does he bring to the party he's very good at sort of like trying everything out you know and he said well at least try an idea if you know if you don't like the sound and then getting the very very best out of you you know really like getting open to any idea you might have we'll try this if it doesn't work it doesn't work so yeah very good at getting getting a really good finished product he really knows his uh, onions and we should mention Kevin on this as well so Kevin Everson becomes part of the band and Jeff your son as well on it right Tommy piano lessons at the time and he played a couple of notes on the piano yeah that was quite good yeah it's really good that was about two years ago now and is there more to come, do you think? Will there be more from PhD? We had like um, a couple of singles, like Double A Sides, 1974, You Can't Tell Me Lies, and Urban Soul and Living in the 1970s, or Living in the 70s, beg your pardon. I'll put these in the show notes so people can find out more and stuff. But will there be more to come? Well, I don't like to be negative or anything, but I, I can't actually see see that. You know, I'll never say never, but it's really about market forces. It'd have to be quite a demand, I think, for us to do it. And then what are you talking about? Are you talking about new material? Because, you know, uh, again, people, quite rightly, they, they, they want to hear the old stuff, you know. So we did these, these this single which had three new songs. Well, they were, some of them weren't new to me, obviously, but we did three new songs and um, they're not in the set anymore because I don't think people want that, you know. So, yeah, it's an awkward question. I mean, sort of several mind. I never say never, but I don't really think there's a demand for it. I kind of get both uh, aspects on that, but I, I only really like and probably only can really play our old stuff, and I enjoy doing it. But there's a couple of the old things that I'd like to redo and just to give it a new slant on it, but then people might say, oh, it's not as good as the old version. But I, I would just like to re readdress some of these um, mistakes, not m- musical mistakes, but some of the stuff that could have been recorded better. I'm in a sort of different cancer, Jeff, on that one. I think I don't want to touch anything that was actually released by the original lineup as a band when it came out. But any of the stuff that um, was demoed or only came out in demo form or was never released properly, I think it's fair game. So, like, for instance, like, we did Urban Soul, didn't we, as a single, which had been out on a live app, but it was never, there was no studio version of it. So there's things like Smashing Time that I'd like, I think would make a good single, you know. So I'm in a slightly different camp to Jeff on that one, but yeah. Yeah. So there's some old stuff I think you could revisit, but it has to be stuff that's never come out like as a vinyl thing in the original career for it to be valid to me, anyway. That makes sense. I get that, yeah. Let's talk Weller. It is the Paul Weller fan podcast, obviously. Were the Style Council a thing for you? Post those demos. What were your connections with Mr. Weller after that point, Jeff? I don't think there was really any connection apart from bumping into him a couple of times in London at various things, but I don't think there really was much, any more connections, really. Yeah, I don't think I've got it as, as much as I can probably see it now. But at the time, I think because everyone was just sort of, like, you know, everyone's heart was broken because, you know, the jam had disbanded and their world had fallen apart. But, you know, so it was, you know, for him to suddenly be playing music that seemed really alien to us at the time. But looking back on it now, yeah, and, and I've been to see bands like um, Skull Counselors who are, who are great, and that's probably as close as you'll ever see to a real Skull Council gig now. And, um, yeah, the, the music was great, and it still does stand the test of time. The Curtis Mayfield stuff, as I call it, like ever-changing moods, Long Hot Summer's got a massive personal resonance for me. Um, Go on, why? I'm not going to tell you that, not on a public pork. I'll tell you in five. <laughs> that is the point of the podcast. What do you mean? <laughs> I'll tell you, no, you know some songs you apply to a personal situation, don't you? 
the great thing about this. He was bare chest on a boat going up and down. <laughs> no, 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 no. Those days punting on the like, river cam. <laughs> if you if you want to get onto the early Weller Silo stuff, I sort of like, uh, what was the first one? That was okay. What was the second one? Was it, uh, what was it called, the second one? Wildwood. I really like Wildwood, Lifewood, and Stanley Road, yeah? And that was it. That's it. I just... That's, I just moved on from that. Was it? I'll never listen to him again after that. But I really like those three. What about you, Jeff? The solo years. Um, I didn't really. I obviously had some of the uh, CDs at the time, but I didn't. I sort of lost track of. I think everything musically probably around sort of like mid to late nineties. But now I'm, I've got into a lot more. Obviously, got in through Ocean Colour Scene through Steve Craddock, and I think I'm a lot more open minded musically now. Everyone wants to go and see Paul Weller. Everyone wants to hear Town Called Malice. We all know it should be a national anthem, but it never will be. But it's just great because you want to try and relive those years, but it's just like people want to come and see us, want to hear millions like us from frustration, you know? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Now I mentioned you're on the road with From the Jam with Bruce and Russell this year and next year as Purple Hearts. So, and this is their, what would it be, 45th anniversary tour of all mod cons. Because when we played with um, From the Jam last year at, um, where was it, Rob? Leamington Spa? Was it last year or the year before? Actually, no, the year before, yeah. So Russell yeah. came into the dressing room and he said, oh, he said, I remember coming. He actually came to see us in 81 or 82 at the Alpha Palais model day. Oh, right. I didn't know that. He mentioned but- that to me. So he said, 1980, I was in a band called Paralysis. We went up to the Ilford Palais mod all day with the Purple Hearts and the chords on the bill. I threw a tape on stage of our original demos and I got a call from the Purple Hearts manager to support them on some other dates. When can I expect this to happen? <laughs> Will it be another 43 <laughs> years? But he did say that night is where my life took a 180 degree turn for many reasons, which will be disclosed in my book. <laughs> oh. oh, you're not going to mention the, uh, no, that was in the dress room. That what happened in the dress room stays in the dress room. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she says something I've said several times to people. You never think of yourself affecting people in that way. You can never, I can never get it into my head. It's like, you know, like I've got a very small record collection now. I started getting back into vinyl, but I won't put the Purple Hearts records in with my other records. Why not? Because to me, they're not real because <laughs> I did. They're not, they're not the same. I can't put them in with the other stuff. I don't know what that is. It's really weird, isn't it? It's not that like I don't like them. I don't think the hearts are great and all that. You, you know, can get therapy for that kind of behaviour, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not that's interesting, out. though, isn't it? It's almost like you think you're playing at this and this isn't a real thing. Well, what I mean is I just can't, for some reason, I've ne- I can't do it. I can't put them in with my... What's um, the expression, Bob? Is it existentialism? It, it, it seems like it wasn't really us. No, no. I just think, I think it's because they're my records or our records. I have to sort of divide them into records I've done and then records other people have done, I suppose. Yeah, I don't think it's happened to me. You've got one really tiny box and one really... (laughs) (laughs) I should get some help on that one. uh, It does feel like you're like, these are not proper things. They are. You were a band and people loved you guys. Come on. that we were actually it happened yeah. yeah hey look good luck with all the gigs that are coming up um Thank at the you. time of recording the brighton mod weekender is coming up i think at the time of release we might just be the week after it so this is the august bank holiday weekend those things must be less than like a massive blast for people right yeah it's great yeah. it's a great weekend there'll be loads of people down there on their scooters and just having a really good time it's about how atmosphere yeah you mentioned the scooter i should ask you so we're in a room. I don't know what room this is, Jeff. We're in a room here. It looks like a scooter shop or something. Yeah, it is. yeah I've got a little scooter showroom over in Cranham in Essex. Yeah, just selling one or two of the Royal Alloys. And we occasionally get the old Lambrettas as well. So. Nice. So what is it you're selling? Uh, it's a 1965 Lambretta SX125. Uh, but we haven't mentioned the wonderful Andy Orr and John Rand, our new guys. Who, without them two, this would never have been possible to, con- you know, to continue and to ma- maintain its strength. And it was really sad and unfortunate when Kevin left and when Andy left with him. Um, but for Drew, as he's known, and John Ratton to jump on board, and not only have they sort of embraced it and made it, in my opinion, sound better than it ever has because of their mod revival sort of like credibility and everything, it, it really has got to give us a whole new lease of life. Nice. Great. Well, look, we'll put all the details in the show notes. We'll put links of where people can see you live and find all that. And I've got two final questions for each of you before we go. Okay. And Jeff, I'll start with you. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. What are you going to go with? Um, you do something to me. 
Why that one? Is this like the um, long hot summer? There's a story behind it. Uh, no, it's just meaningful. And since meeting Craddock, I just love his guitar solo on it. And it's just, yeah. But everyone loves In the City or my cons and To Be Someone. But yeah, To Be Someone probably is my other one. If you wanted me to give you two, which I've given you two now. <laughs> I didn't, but that's good that you did. Thanks, <laughs> Bob. Your turn. Oh God! Well, uh, I don't know. I'll just tonight at noon. Why that one? Because I wish I could write something as poetic, you know, and as romantic as that. Most of my songs are like just me being whining on about how fucked up I am. So, <laughs> I guess there is that inspiration of Weller as a lyricist as well. So it's not just you, you as teenagers, as kids, loving well, the sound of this band, but the words mean so much. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give you two examples of direct influence. Concrete Mixer was me, not totally because of him, but Ray Bradbury's uh, short story. But I, I wanted a song like uh, In the Crowd. And when that when I first heard that, I nearly gave up. I thought that was so good, you know. I never thought, I'm, that's it, I'm, I'll quit. And the other one, uh, Shell Shock on the second album, Poppish Frenzy. Uh, again, that's me sort of trying to do a Strange Town type song. So, yeah, there's a big, yeah, big influence there. Yeah, but I've tried to write thematically like him at least but uh, he's got a lot more um poetry to what he does really because he, he was influenced by the adrian henry and all that sort of thing when he liverpool poet school and that right? right final question so the purpose of this podcast is to meet lovely people like yourselves hear your connections with weller the jam the style council all that kind of stuff but the real purpose of the podcast is for me to get an interview with paul weller it was my one big regret from giving up my radio career that i never got to interview the man so i've created a podcast to make it happen <laughs> if it if it happens what should i ask him jeff what would you like to know why has it taken so long to get an interview with dan jennings yeah. <laughs> gary crowley just had to ring him up from a phone box i don't understand it I would have thought you would have had it done by now, surely. You'd have thought. We'll be three years in December, Jeff. Three years of podcasts, God. Really? A lot of people would probably say, oh, you know, when are you getting the jam back together? But, you know, just taking that one briefly, you've got to admire him for stopping when they're on a complete and utter ultimate height. So, you know, you've got to respect him for doing that. So why would he ever go back and do something like that? Because he must have been offered an absolute fortune, you'd have thought, to get that back together, right? The Clash were offered ridiculous money, and I'm imagining the Jam had been as well, yeah. What would you like to know, Bob? What was your question to Mr. Wellaby? Uh, a bit of a cheeky one, really, that I got from John Lennon when he met Elvis. When are you going to start making rock and roll records again? <laughs> I love that. I don't know how he'd take it. <laughs> well, look, this has been such a joy. Thank you so much for coming on. Jeff, Bob, Purple Hearts. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers, Dan. Take care. Bye. My thanks once again to Bob Manton and Jeff Shadbolt from Purple Hearts. You can find out more details about the band, their back catalogue, the songs that we talked about, including PH2, on my website. Just head to the show notes, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And don't forget, make sure you share this episode of the podcast on your social media channels. Spread the word on Twitter, stroke X, and Facebook. In fact, pick up the phone right now and ring a Weller-loving friend of yours to let them know that the Paul Weller Fan Podcast is here and a brand new episode has dropped. You can also show your support. Head to my website and our store for official merchandise. And if you want to buy yourself a virtual coffee, you can do exactly that as well. Just head to the store, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Hello to Smeg from the 829 Club, who's bought us a coffee. Thank you, sir. Hello to Jen. Thank you to you. Hi, Ron. Thanks for your support. Stephen Cartwright, Stu Burns, Jane the Jam Tart with a Heart, Nick Keane, Roger Clark, Sean Wilson, thank you to you for your virtual coffees. Hello to John the Mod, who says, Hi Dan, absolutely love the podcast. I've loved so many of the guests and the stories. It's lovely to hear from those who have played with Paul, especially the Style Council. It's brought back so many lovely memories of my teenage years. Keep it coming, Dan. It's amazing. Cheers. Hey, thank you, John. Hope you enjoyed this episode too. Hello to Phil Baker. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. If you want to get involved, go online, paulwellerfanpodcast.com and get in touch if you fancy it. Social media, at wellerfanpod on Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week. You can also search for us on Instagram, Facebook and threads, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Now, next up, episode 160 and a very, very special guest, a world exclusive episode coming up to celebrate 160 podcast episodes of Desperately Seeking Paul. Make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.